Heavenly Father, thank you for an absolutely awesome day. We believe that you are here very present with us, and we long to know you. We long to know everything about you, and this morning as we step into that adventure of knowing about you, I ask God that you would reveal yourself through your word, and that you would instruct us. And and God, I pray that we would not just know about you, but that we would truly, truly know you as our Creator, Savior, Redeemer. I ask God that you would, day by day, teach us, not just through your word, but as we walk with you, teach us your ways. And I just ask, Father, right now, as we look into your word, open our eyes, let us see, let us understand this awesome, awesome God that's called us and rescued us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off by asking a question that will set up the topic for today. And it's probably a question that each of you have heard of or been asked by a skeptic. And it's this. Is God powerful enough to create a rock that he cannot lift? Have you heard, how many of you have ever heard that question before? Okay. Is God powerful enough to create a rock that he cannot lift? What, what is your answer? Who cares? <laughs> Why would you do that? So you open okay, it actually is very relevant. The question is very relevant. But is he powerful but, enough? Sure, he can do anything. Though. Why would? Okay, but why would? Nothing too powerful. But no, it's powerful okay, but my question is not why. My question is: Is he powerful enough to create a rock that he cannot lift? No, because that's circular reasoning. If you're powerful enough to create a rock like that, then you'd be powerful enough to lift it, right? Like, you can't... Right. You, like, if... if Okay. He's infinite, therefore there's no answer to that question because infinite has no end, therefore it has no answer. Okay. All right, any other attempts at this? That's obviously wrong as well, I guess. So, (laughs) your answer... Your answer is no... Uh, or, or yes, no, no, he is not powerful enough to create a rock that he cannot lift. No, I don't think that's no, impossible. Okay. But my, okay, my so describe your answer one more time. If he, if he has, if his power is infinitesimal, the rock that he creates will be in accordance with his power. He will, the, the, the rock will never be heavier than his power, and his power will never be he- be weak enough not to lift the rock. Okay. So it's not a yes or no answer. Right. Right. Okay. What's that? It's and not also, a yes or no answer. Right. Also, the rock would have to be within the universe and where there's matter. Right. And God is outside of matter and okay. time. That, that's where I wanted us to go with this answer. It would crush the earth if he did that, too. That would be good. No, when, especially if Scott is on that earth. <laughs> See, here, here's what this question does. This question sets us up with this concept of a God that is bound by what he has created. And he's not. Now, here's where I'm going with this. The reason why I've asked this question is because when we are trying to understand God... We have to be careful. Scripture can only relate this infinite God in terms of our experience. Did you understand what I just said? 
our experience is with, for example, love. Have you experienced love that is beyond human love or either you being loved by a human or as a human loving something else? Have you experienced a love beyond that? I have. Yes. You have? Okay. And what love would that be? God's love. Okay. All right. And here's, here's our problem with this is because when we're trying to talk about and experience the love of God, it is going to tend to be bound by our human experience. For example, let me just give you an illustration here. Can you describe the color red to a person who's been blind all their life? You can't. You can try, but even with them, they have no experience with color, and they have no experience with sight. Let's say you describe it to someone who's colorblind. Stephen, what colors can you not see? Green. Can't see green. And red and orange look very similar. They're not the same. So. <clears throat> okay. All right. So let's say we're trying to describe the color green to to him. How would how would we do that? I don't know. I've always heard it said to describe like if you're gonna describe blue to someone that's blind, you like show them well, not show, but you have them like handle water. Or like if you're gonna say green, like go to grass. But that Okay. The only problem with that is they're still not gonna understand the color. Right. They can only judge it by feel, not sight. Then the reason why I bring this up is God is trying to communicate through his word and our experience with him who he is. And he's beyond all of that. He's beyond our experience in this world because he created it all and he is beyond his creation. So therefore, the answer to this question is God strong enough to create a rock that's too big, he is far more powerful and he cannot be bound by that creation. So if there were, if you could imagine the largest rock ever, he would always be able to lift that because he is more powerful than everything that he's created. So how do we understand something that's beyond our experience? Do you understand what I'm saying then? And so... What I'm going to say is as we are studying the scriptures and we are experiencing God in our walk with him, he will always be beyond that. There will always be more about him. We also know this because our minds are finite and he is infinite. And so the finite will never fully be able to comprehend the infinite. This I know this sounds rather philosophical, but... The the reason why I, I say this, and I mentioned this, I do believe, at the in our very first class, is because we have to be careful in believing that we really completely understand God. Okay? That is a fallacy. That we fully, un- next week, that, yeah, I fully understand the sovereignty of God. Um, not. You won't. And so there will always be this element of mystery. But here is what I will say. Even though the secret things belong to the Lord, the revealed things belong to us and to our children that we can obey Him. 
there is enough in Scripture that reveals God to us so that we can obey Him, so that we can know Him, we can have a a relationship with Him to the fullest that a human bound in our bodies, etc., and our limitations can have with an infinite God. This is sufficient. And, and theologians call this the, the sufficiency of Scripture. And I say this because as we, we're going to scratch the surface of the topic today, the attributes of God. Because there are what's called the communicable, communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. And I'll leave it up to you to spell that as best you can. Don't make me write that. But the communicable attributes of God are those attributes that we share in with Him. The incommunicable attributes are those that we cannot share in. And as we go through this list... Almost all of the ones that we're going to talk about are the incommunicable attributes of God. And it's the last two that are the communicable attributes of God. And even though uh, J is just two verses, there's a bunch within those um, that concept of the divine nature that we can look at. I'm going to focus on two, but there, there's a lot more that we could focus on. So... It, this, this is a lifelong adventure to understand the attributes of God. And consequently, we have been invited through the scripture to join him in this journey of understanding. And not just understanding, because that's so intellectual, but to experience day by day this God who is characterized in a very specific way. And, and I say it that because there is a group of people, a very large number of group of people, that have a particular view of God very different than the God that's revealed in the Bible. Let me just give you an example of one of their beliefs, two of their beliefs. They believe that it is right and noble to kill those who do not believe in their God. And I'm not saying all of them. And they give this term jihad to that act. If, you're, if you are not going to believe in our God, you will die. Uh, this goes all the way back to Muhammad. This is how he promoted his religion. And he did so at the tip of a sword. And a lot of people died because they refused to believe in Allah. And so the question, and you've probably been asked this, is... Well, not a question, let me give, a, give it in a statement form. What is the big deal about all these different religions because we all serve the same God? And the question then is, do we? all serve the same God. We would have to say no. Because even, I did say there were two things I wanted to touch on. Because the second thing is, and, and there's many, honestly, there's many. The differences between how Muslims define Allah and how we define the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, as described in the Bible. There is a huge difference. We cannot say 
that just because we are using this term God, which in Islam is Allah, that's, that's the name God for them, or that is the term God, title God for them. And so just because we believe in this God does not mean that it's the same God because we always have this tendency to make God in our image. That is our tendency as mankind. That is why there's this propensity to say we all serve the same God. Because we're going to define him in different terms. But they want to worship a term, God, rather than who God truly is. God is not defined in a hundred different ways that are contradictory. Okay? There is one way in which God is to be defined. And he is not defined by this type of God who is willing to just kill people that disagree with him. Alright? And so the Islamic God truly believes that their God is filled with wrath, mm-hmm. they, that it is completely fine with Allah to kill on his behalf. Um, it is also, the second thing, is it is also perfectly fine to lie to an infidel in the name of Allah. And so that's why the, when politicians deal with Islam or Muslims, especially the radical Muslims, the, they have to be so careful. And those who have studied Islam say, careful, President Obama, be careful. It is part of their belief system that says it is okay to lie to you because you are not an, a, a Muslim. Or at least that's what Obama says. So it's okay for me at the bargaining table to extend overtures that I'm going to say this is what we will do, promises, but it's okay if I don't do them. Why? Because it's okay for me to lie in the name of Allah or Allah to an infidel. And that basic premise, and, and that's why they say, Obama, you cannot negotiate with them. You can't. Because of this basic premise, it's okay to lie. Now, that is not what the God of the Bible has revealed to us about him. And I'm going to say that his laws, such as do not lie, are an extension of him in that they reveal an attribute about him of truthfulness that he he does not lie and therefore he has laws in the Ten Commandments you know about speaking truth so the the other thing that we need to realize is that Jesus Christ being the word of God Reveals God the Father in John fourteen six. Well, you know what? Hang on a second. Okay, I'm just going to switch this around. Okay, John fourteen six. I'm not turned there, so I'm going to quickly do that myself. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life," and. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Because he's saying, if you, if, from now on, 
you know him and you've seen him. And then, wait a second, okay, just show us the Father. And that's going to be all that we need. And Jesus rebukes him and he, he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then it says in Hebrews chapter 1, and and these are not in your notes, by the way. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, turning there quickly, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. He is the radiance of God's glory. That in itself mental circus just start blowing the radiance of his glory because we just have a difficulty understanding his, his God's glory much less the radiance of his glory and he's the exact representation of his being Colossians 1.15 puts it this way that Jesus is the image of the invisible God so Jesus can say to Philip if you have seen me you have seen the Father <clears throat> Now, he is not saying that because you have seen me, I am in physical form, um, that that is an exact representation of the Father who is only spirit. Okay, do you understand what I mean by this? So, everything about Jesus, except what the limitations of humanity that he's taken upon himself, because he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, Philippians 2 says... Aside from those limitations, he perfectly reveals the Father. Okay? In those ways, other than his human flesh, he perfectly reveals the Father. And so, we can look at the life of Jesus and see the one true God. So, all of these attributes that uh, are communicable, that we're going to talk about more towards the end, these are those things that Jesus perfectly um, represents. We, we, by looking at Jesus, we're not going to understand the Father's omnipresence, um, um, for example. All right, because Jesus took on the limitations of human flesh. All right, I want you to turn now to Judges, chapter two, and we're going to we're going to start moving into these attributes, and we need to to realize. Uh, a, a truth here that's revealed to us in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. Um, <clears throat> it is, Joshua has just passed away. The elders of his generation have died and a new generation is on the scene. And it says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Those two categories. To knowing, in order to know the Lord, you first have to know about him. But we need to realize that our understanding of God, it starts with Scripture... But our understanding of God has got to be more than this. Okay? It has to, exp- it has to include 
this walk with God, this experience with God, because that is what, as they say, a picture paints a thousand words. That is what fleshes out and makes these truths and descriptions of God understandable to us, real to us. Okay? You can... Um, you can hear the truth, God is love. Okay, God is love, God is love. But when you hear that, you will have a tendency to associate it with your experience with love. And honestly, there are people who have had very bad experiences with love, and they now need to experience God's love. And when they experience God's love, and how radically different it is than man's love, they will come to a greater understanding of this truth, God is love. Now, um, Moses puts it this way. Uh, the people of Israel, they just sacrificed to an idol. And Aaron comes up with that, yeah, we just threw the gold into the fire. Not couldn't this, this calf idol. Probably one of the most humorous portions of scripture. But God judges them. And Moses has now gone on, gone up has approached God on Mount Sinai and he is he wants to have a, a sit down with God he eventually, we're not going to get into it he wants to experience the glory of God or all the goodness of God, but this is what he says He's saying, he says in verse 13 Exodus thirty-three, thirteen. not in your notes to so write it down um, he says if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you. Teach me your ways so that I may know you. Not just know about you, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Exodus 33, 13. Um... Moses realizes that if he's going to lead this people, he is going to need to know more about this God. He's going to need to know more about his ways. Not just these concepts, but these ways. And, and God's ways, how he deals with Israel that I read in Judges 2.10. The ways of God, how God has treated Israel. That's the attributes of God fleshed out in human experience and then people can say, wow, that is God's love. Okay? Then when we start seeing Jesus, for example, his death on the cross, and the more you plumb the depths of that love, greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And we begin to understand everything in there, the cost of what Jesus did. We begin to gain a greater appreciation for the love of God, okay? That is beyond our experience with human love. All right? So, when we understand this, Let's realize that the attributes of God are found in the Word and we discover them experientially. Our understanding of this awesome God is expanded because it is in our walk with Him that He begins to paint a picture, that's worth a thousand words, begins to paint a picture of who God is. Now, I am not in any way trying to place our experience 
as more valuable than Scripture. That is absolutely inaccurate. What I am saying is, Scripture leads us to this understanding of who this God is, but that is intellectual. This interaction with the Word of God is appealing to my mind. Hopefully it sinks down into my heart, but it has to be experienced. I have to experience God's love. Okay? So when people say, yes, I experienced God's love, and I should have come up with an example before now, Um, and it totally contradicts Scripture, you have to say, I'm sorry, but that... What you experience, that is not the love of God. And so I say that because our experience with God has to be absolutely rooted and grounded in Scripture. Mm-hmm. But if all we're going to go by is Scripture, we are missing it. Because even Judges 2.10, Moses, he says, I want to know your ways. Tell me about your ways. This is the reason why it was so important for the fathers to communicate to their children all of these stories of how God interacted with his people so that they would not just know God intellectually, so that they would have a, uh, like a template of who this God is so that they too can experience this relationship with God. Okay, so that's where we, the attributes of God are not just intellectually grasped. We experience them in this awesome relationship with him. Okay, so let, let's, let's do that. I've taken quite a while to introduce this topic, I guess. The names of God. What is in a name? Why does God even have names? Why, Like the Muslims, Allah, that's it. To my knowledge, that, that, that's all they call him, that's all I've heard. Um, why don't we just, just God? What about El Shaddai? What is El Shaddai? Anybody want to? God. God Almighty. Why doesn't he just reveal himself as God Almighty? Why does he, and you can turn to Exodus chapter 6 if you would like, why does he also reveal himself as Yahweh? And, and Yahweh is it's kind of like his personal name. Uh, we might use this concept in our language, his first name. I'm not trying to make an exact correlation there, but this is his personal. This is this is who he is, and and it actually says in Exodus six, um, I verse two, I am Yahweh speaking to Moses. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Wait a second. If you were to go back into Genesis, you will discover the name Yahweh on the lips of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, wait a second, God. Are are you telling us a fib here? Of course you revealed yourself as Yahweh. Otherwise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not have used your name. And I don't think that Moses went back into those materials in front of him that he compiled to create Genesis... Um, and put that name on their lips. They did know God as Yahweh. So what is he trying to say here? He said, I did not reveal myself as Yahweh. In other words, it's not that they didn't know the name, but they they were not able to grasp this understanding of the name Yahweh. 
They had not experienced that. They had experienced him and known him as El Shaddai, God Almighty. So let me just quickly flesh that out. God speaks to Abraham. He says, even in your old age and Sarah's old age, this time next year, you're going to have a child. Actually, that promise was a 24-year ongoing promise. In the 25th year, Sarah, even though she's barren and old, 91 by the way, Moses is, excuse me, Abraham is 100, she has a baby. That is a powerful act of God to have done that. Um, We see uh, numerous miracles. Even in Noah's day, we see the, the flood, of course. We see how God miraculously provides. How God takes Joseph from just being a, a, um, a son of Jacob, allows him to experience uh, slavery, being sold into slavery, and raised up to second command. That is the providence, the sovereignty, the miraculous power of God that Joseph experienced in his life. And so what we see is we see these snapshots of the power of God. That is God El Shaddai, Almighty. There's nothing that He cannot do. But God is Yahweh, the all-existing one, as He reveals Himself to Moses in Exodus 3, He says, I will be with you. That is the daily, moment-by-moment, walk with God that transcends our personal experience as humans and we see what this God can do every day. Not just snapshots. Every day he provided air. He, he Water came from rock. He provided quail. He protected them from their enemies. Every day they experienced this infinite power of God in their lives. And so he, in the name Yahweh, reveals himself now to Israel as a very personal God. Before... It was God Almighty more as the transcendent God. Transcendent means beyond our experience. God is beyond us. Okay? He's, he's far more than just human. Okay, But he is also the imminent God, the personal God. And Yahweh, this name Yahweh, kind of takes these two concepts of the transcendent and imminent God together. And this now is what Israel experienced in their 40 years of wandering. And this, for, this is what God means when he's telling, saying to Moses, I revealed myself as El Shaddai to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but right now I am going to reveal myself to you and the people of Israel as Yahweh. Now I only read a, a verse or so and, and you can get that understanding as you continue to read as God speaks to Moses. What verse was that again? That was chapter 6, verse 2. Oh, Exodus. Exodus. Um, <clears throat> and that's right there in letter A. Oh, okay. Let's turn to Revelation 1 8. <clears throat> the names of God. Revelation 1 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We see this name. Alpha and Omega. We see the name, the Lord God. We see 
the name the Almighty. There are three names communicated to us. And so when I ask the question, what's in a name? God has many names. I would venture to say Yahweh is that personal covenantal name that he's revealed to us. But he has many names because those names, the purpose of them is to illuminate to us some quality characteristic of this God that we worship. And that is the purpose. It helps us understand more about him. The Alpha and the Omega. What does that name say to you? The Alpha and the Omega. Okay. What is Alpha and Omega? Okay, it's the first letter. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. So God is the beginning and the end. Which, by the way, is another title in Revelation that we see. He is the beginning and the end. All right? What does that mean? That God is the beginning and the end. Okay. He is before all things, and he is the consummation of all things. Um, Everything is wrapped up in him. Um, He's the all-existing one. Okay? Um, Everything in between is what he has created, so he's before it and after it. Okay? So it, it gives us this sense of from everlasting to everlasting, which is... Which is from Psalms. Okay? Um, And so, the names of God are going to help us understand more about God. Anthropomorphism, this is letter B. Anthropomorphism, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, because this is a, this this, this can generate quite a bit of discussion. We read in Revelation, excuse me, we, we were in Exodus 33, but in Exodus 33, Moses asks God to reveal his glory to him. And then God says, all of my goodness, so I'm going to equate those two, but all of my goodness will pass in front of you. But I'm going to put my hand, I'm going to tuck you in the cleft and put my hand over you as I pass by so that all you will see is my back and you will not see my face. So there are three, uh, three anthropomorphisms that are used there. Anthropomorphism is taking a human form, quality, and attributing it to God. The face of God, the front, the, the, the back of God, the hand of God, um, etc. And the question then is, does God have a hand? Does God have a back? Does he have a face? Because no man has seen God. Um, and part of the reason that uh, the scripture gives us is, is, is that man would not be able to create an image of God. But we... Does God have these qualities? We are made in his image and God is beyond um, human form. And so, but I, I mention anthropomorphisms because scripture needs to communicate God to us, but he has to do so with what we are familiar with. So, I'm not going to say that there is no face of God, but let's realize that this may well be Scripture's attempt, God's attempt to reveal to us who He is based on our human experience. Okay, Because God is spirit, He is not human. However, of course, Jesus took on human flesh. Right now, Jesus is still human. He is fully human, fully God. He didn't stop being human when he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Okay? 
So th- th- that's all that I wanted to say about anthropomorphisms. Um, theophanies uh, are simply um, appearances of God in human form. Theophanies, uh, we see many of them, for example, in, in Revelation when God reveals himself to Abraham. Especially when the three angels, this is what they're called, three angels, three men, actually appear to Abraham. And two of them went on to Sodom, and they are called angels. And a third is left, and there is a dialogue now between Yahweh and Abraham. And then the question is, well, what about this third guy? Does he just stand there? Unless this third guy is, excuse me for putting it that way, third guy, this third man, unless this third man is Yahweh. And it is Yahweh. He's not speaking from heaven. He's dialoguing with him. And therefore, this is a theophany. This is God taking on a human appearance. And, and many would say that this would be the, pre- the um, pre-incarnate Christ revealing himself in human form. But anyway, this would be a theophany. God revealing himself in human form to, to man. Um, we can look at this concept um, in letter D that he is eternal and he is infinite. Regardless, we've already talked about this, even though he's eternal, which means he would then be beyond time, time is something he's created, and he's infinite, these two things communicate something to us that's beyond our human experience. And yet we are invited to know this eternal God and this infinite God that is beyond our experience. Okay? Um, he's unchangeable. He's, look at these next three. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he's omnipresent. What does omni mean? All. All. Okay. So that means that he is all-knowing, omniscient. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. And he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Okay? Now, because he's omnipresent does not mean what the pantheists call that God is in everything. That is not what's communicated by omnipresent. Okay? Um, I really want to spend the remainder of our time on these last two uh, letters, I and J. God is spirit. And those who worship him, John 4 says, must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is according to truth. Um, God is spirit. And so when he created us, he created us with this dual nature of spirit and body. By the way, for us to die and be disembodied so that our, our body goes into the ground and our spirit rises to be with God, that is an unnatural state for us to be in. Because our natural state is to be clothed in a body and most specifically in a, an incorruptible body. So that's why we will be spending eternity with an incorruptible body, unable to decay, um, with a spirit. God, however, does not have flesh like we do. Um, and so, 
because of that, when we, we, we can talk about anthropomorphisms and, and the purpose of these things, but God is spirit and we cannot see that. Um, when the Holy Spirit I wonder if I should get into this but when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer we are said to be filled with the Spirit it's interesting in the charismatic movement that we then talk about the presence of God that we are we are inviting the presence of God. Even though the truth is that God is in us and He's very present in us, and Scripture always says where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, there I will be in your midst. And what is meant by this, then, is not so much that God's not here and we are asking that He come and be here, but we are actually asking for his manifested presence. So this is, this is God as spirit. He indwells us. We are therefore from the Reformation on this very important truth of the priesthood of all believers. Um, we, we enter into God's presence because we have his spirit in us. So we, have, we all have the Spirit of God, and yet there is this concept that we do see in Scripture, even in the New Testament, of the manifested presence of God. Mm-hmm. That God was certainly present uh, at Pentecost, and yet it says the Spirit filled the room. Um, it says in Acts 4 that they are crying out to God that... Um, that he give them great boldness, that he do miracles among them. And God's response to this prayer is that the house in which they are praying is shaken, and then they are filled with the Spirit of God. Now, I, I don't want to get into this concept of refillings, because we're going to get into that when we talk about the Holy Spirit. But what they experience there is a manifested presence of God. I would venture to say that God in the Old Testament dwelt on the mercy seat which was on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. So God's presence was there. However, when they dedicate the temple, his presence is manifested. And what they see is a cloud. Okay? And the result of God's manifested presence is that they are not able to stand in this presence of God. And all the priests, it says that they were unable to minister before the the temple. And they hit the deck. And so God is spirit, he's omnipresent, and yet what is beyond our understanding is the spirit of God can dwell in us and, and the fullness of God dwell in us and yet we can still experience this manifested presence of God. And many theologians make, mock this concept of the presence of God or the manifested presence of God, but it is clearly scriptural. And they do so because of what I said in the beginning, that hey, if you've got the Spirit of God in you, what is this presence of God you're asking for? He's already present with you. 
But Scripture clearly speaks of the manifested presence of God. So even though God is spirit, there is a qualitative, experiential difference when God is present. For example, um, Jesus has a healing ministry. God is certainly, and the power of God is certainly in Jesus to heal, but then it says that the power of God was present to heal. What? The power of God was already present because Jesus was there. And so I'm not trying to help us completely understand this, but this is the manifested presence of God. It is beyond just this deposit of the Spirit. It is God now manifesting, that is, evidencing Himself, clearly uh doing miracles, for example, uh, changing hearts. Uh, There are times in which you may well, during worship, you may well experience the manifested presence of God. You may not see it, but for some reason, as you're worshiping, you just start weeping in His presence. Has anyone ever experienced that before? You just start weeping in the presence of God. That is because there, God is now manifesting Himself there, and many times you may experience healings, and the next service you will not. Is it because God didn't show up? Now, we, we, we kind of use that term to you, God just didn't show up. But the truth is, yes, he was there. He was just uh, he was just not manifesting himself in the way he did in another time. And we see this throughout Scripture. Uh, some people use the term revivals to describe this manifested presence of God, in which, for some inexplicable reason, many more people are saved. For example, let me just say this. Uh, are you guys familiar with the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you realize that um, Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon one Sunday and there was no response to it? But when he preached it a week later, people say that was the beginning of the revival. People, the manifest presence of God was experienced then and people started getting saved um, now there were some incidences that happened as I understand during the course of the week someone had died in their church and God used that but it was more than just experiential in revivals things then start happening um, the spirit of God is poured out and I say the spirit of God is poured out The Spirit of God is already there because Christians are there. But it's legitimate to say that the Spirit of God is poured out. Again, the manifested presence of God. And and this is our term that we're using to help us understand and describe this phenomenon of God, if you will, showing up. And doing something beyond what He normally does. This is the manifested presence of God. Okay, let, let, let me move on. I want to spend the remainder of my time on this last thing called the divine nature. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Okay. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. His divine power 
has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these... Excuse me. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, that is, these precious promises, we, or you, may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What does he mean by divine nature? Liberal theology would say that Jesus was totally human, but he he achieved or experienced the divine nature more than any other human being And so, for this reason, they call Jesus divine. That does not mean that they're saying he's God. As I was studying um, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, he he grew up in a liberal church. He went to a liberal seminary. He wrote papers. You can actually read some of these. Um, And in those papers, he describes Jesus as a mere human attaining this divine nature uh, more than any other human. And so for this reason, he says, we call him divine. Is this true? Who do you say said that? Sorry. That would be Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Civil rights leader. Uh, He was not conservative by any stretch of the imagination. He was very liberal. Um, And his lifestyle revealed that. Um, so he denied the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is different than this concept of divine or divinity. Because divine or divinity speaks of attributes, not essence. Do you understand what I mean there? Attributes, that is something like the love of God. That is an attribute. That is divine in nature. That is part of his communicable attributes. We can experience love to a limitation, but we can experience this attribute of God. <clears throat> and we are in this way invited into the divine nature. That does not mean we become deity. So when we refer to, and we will in the next trimester, talk about the deity of Christ, I am. let's not confuse that with this concept of Divine, okay? Um, How many of you ever heard of a Masters of Divinity? That pastors used to be called divines, alright? They're not saying that they are God, alright? That is not what they mean. And that they are somehow becoming masters at being God. that's, That's not what is meant. Deity describes essence. Divine describes nature, qualities, characteristics. Okay? Um, I'll talk about that when I get into the the deity of Christ. All right, passage in Colossians chapter 2. So, we have not been invited to experience the deity of God. 
we have been invited to experience the divine nature of God. Jesus, ex- Jesus did not just experience and achieve by his lifestyle the apex of divine nature. Okay? That is liberal theology. Jesus, what is at the core of his being, deity, God. So he was in essence, and that is what Philippians 2, he was in the form, the morphos of God. He, He experienced not just the qualities of God, he was God, okay? Fully God. And therefore, in this, probably a creed or a hymn that Paul is quoting there in in Philippians 2, it then says he emptied himself, and I don't want to get into that kenosis, that emptying of himself and what that means, we'll do that later. But then it says he took on the form that is the, the essence, the being of a servant, of a human, being found in the likeness of man. All right? And so we need to realize that Jesus was Jesus achieved more than the divine nature. Like he was the closest that you could ever get in human experience with God. That's liberal theology. No, Jesus was God. So my point though here is that we have been invited to experience this divine nature. What is the divine nature then? We actually are told about what this divine nature is in the following verses. And he says, add to your faith, goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, Philadelphia, and to brotherly kindness, love, agape. All right? Now, there are more. You can read about some of those, the fruits of the Spirit in, in Galatians 5. <clears throat> Those two would be considered the divine nature. But these are now then the qualities, the characteristics of God, and they are communicable to us. These are the things about God that we can experience. As a matter of fact, these would be, and I'm not going to say the sum total of what it means to be in the image of God, because that concept of being in the image of God that we're going to, anyway, I can't remember when, talk about later. The image of God is more than this, but... This is that aspect of God that we have been made in, is love, self-control, perseverance, etc., that we have been made in that image of God. So this is a, an aspect or part of the image of God. But in the fall, that image, much like a mirror that falls and cracks, that image has been completely distorted so that we do not love as God loves, or even close to it. We do not experience self-control or perseverance or brotherly kindness, goodness, etc. That aspect of the image of God in us has been marred. And in Christ, that image is in the process of being restored, Colossians 3 says. Renewed in the knowledge of the image of His Creator. And so... We have been invited now as followers of Jesus Christ to see this image of God healed and restored in us and to experience the depths of faith, goodness, 
knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and agape love, and all the fruits of the Spirit that are listed, not only in Galatians 5, but elsewhere. Okay. Um, I want to focus now... I want to focus on two... Uh, aspects, two qualities of God's divine nature. Um, and because of these, a lack of understanding on man's part of these two qualities of God's nature, we wrestle with understanding God. Let me give you an example. War. I do believe that Scripture does not teach a pacifist view of war that God is a God of war and he's not just a God of war in the Old Testament but that is who he is that is part of his nature it's not just that he chose war in the Old Testament and doesn't choose war in the New I think if we understand um, turn the other cheek to mean we should um, we should not uh, defend ourselves even to the point of death um, and use force to do so I think if we're going to understand that passage in the Sermon on the Mount that way, we are misunderstanding what that passage means. I don't want to spend time right now in describing a just word, but people wrestle with this concept. If God is love, then why would he allow us to take someone's life? And I'm going to just tell you this. If someone breaks into my house with a gun and tries to kill my family, I will... And I believe, be led by the Spirit of God, I will take his life. Come on, I will do that. And I will not feel guilty about it. I'll feel bad that, the, that I ended up having to take this person's life. I will not rejoice in that. But I tell you what, I will be so uh, grateful to God that his life was um, lost instead of my family. Okay. I will be. I will. I will be grateful that God spared my family, because this is part of the call of God in my life as a husband and a father in my home. I will. I believe it would be extremely ungodly if a man were to do that, and I had the opportunity to defend my family. And even though it may be at the risk of taking his life, if I chose, wow, I can't do that, and he killed my family, I would stand guilty before God, because. We, if, if we hold to a pacifist view, it is because we do not understand <clears throat> excuse me, these two qualities of God. God is love, and God is holy, holy, holy. Those are the two qualities of God that are most... That in, the, in the mind of man, they seem contradictory. And so we will tend either to embrace the love of God and minimize His holiness, or we will embrace the the holiness and justice of God and minimize his love. And some people use this concept, the love, that's the feminine side of God, the holiness, that's the masculine side of God. I'm not going to disagree with that, but let's not seek to embrace one to the exclusion of the other. <clears throat> because to fully, under, listen to this, to fully understand the love of God is to understand him as holy and just. And if we, if we minimize His holiness and His justice, it is only because we do not understand His love. 
I would also say the converse to that. If we are going to understand true holiness, we must understand His love. They are not contradictory. And if we minimize His love, it's because we do not understand His holiness. Uh, It's been said, um, R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Holiness of God, and he had an excellent point that for me, I don't know, I was... 28, 29, 30, somewhere around there, uh, in seminary, doing a paper on the holiness of God really helped me understand, for example, um, when the Ark of the Covenant is being taken into Jerusalem and the road is bumpy and it's on an ark. It's not being carried properly with staves. It's on an ark and it hits a bump, the cart. Yes. Um... So it's on a cart, it hits a bump in the road apparently and tips starts tipping and the priest touches the ark to keep it from touching the ground. Another way R.C. Sproul talks about it, he, he says, here's the assumption that the man's hand was more holy than the ground. Interesting assumption. But... God takes his life. Wow. And R.C. Sproul, under, you know, um, Nadab and Abihu, they offer strange fire before God, and they are struck down dead. Those are Aaron's firstborn and secondborn. Wow. What a picture of God's holiness, but where's his love in that? And so R.C. Sproul, he says, you know what? And he, he throws out this premise. He says that if we do not understand God's holiness, we will never understand His grace or His mercy. And and I'm going to go one step further, and I'm going to say this, that if we don't understand His holiness, it is because we don't understand His love. And if we don't understand His love, it is because we don't understand His holiness. Because these are not polar opposites. God is not a, um, the proper term is not schizophrenic. God is not a bipolar or a uh, multiple personality type of God. All right? In which he's fickle and he swings back and forth. And we will tend to view his holiness and austerity and justice as evil and his love as good. And so we have a book out today called Love Wins and a book written by Francis, uh, excuse me, um, Chan. Bravo. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, Francis Chan? Crazy Love. Yes. It is, it's Francis Chan, right? Yeah, Francis Chan. Okay, yeah. Crazy Love. And he called, he wrote a book called Erasing Hell, right? Yeah. And it's in response to Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, because Rob Bell does not understand the love of God because he doesn't understand the holiness of God. Because not only can we talk about war, now we could talk about hell. If God truly is loving, why would he send anyone to hell? If God is truly loving, then why is there even evil in this world? Why are there hurricanes? Why are there tornadoes? Well, it goes beyond just a a simple understanding of of God's holiness and and love. I'm aware of that. But salvation... There are many who believe in universal salvation, which is what this book borders on, Love Wins. I'm not going to say it's identical to liberal theology's universal salvation, but it is very, very close to it. But 
we, we are trying to erase the holiness and justice of God in order to understand and accept and embrace God's love. And it is only because we don't understand either of them. Scott? Is that okay to ask a question? Yes, go for it. We were talking earlier about Islam and uh, Allah okay. basically throwing down edicts to you know, kill the infidel. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of uh, atheists, even Muslims or, or secularists, would argue that the God of the Old Testament is very much like that because <laughs> the, the Israelites are basically going into villages and towns and completely wiping out from, from child to mm-hmm. eldest. And also, um, I think it's in, I think it's, 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 it's when David's fighting a battle, there's, there's a piece of rope, which is of a certain length. And the enemy okay. gets to line up on the floor, lie down on the mm-hmm. floor, and whoever Takes is the at life the end of certain. that row gets mm-hmm. their life taken. And the other, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of where where is the difference? I, I guess the, the I'd like to be able I know to argue back. Where is the difference between sure. that God and Allah? Right. <clears throat> and I would say there is a tremendous, tremendous difference. Okay. And here's the difference. Um, let me preface it with this gentleman by the name of Marcion in 140 AD. He was a heretic. Um, very, his, his theology was very similar to, to Gnosticism, not quite. And his view was that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And that they were not the same God. That Jesus was a revelation of the God, the, the true God of love and was at war, if you will, with this God of wrath that's revealed to us in the Old Testament. Um, So when you hear this expression, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, the God of the New Testament is a God of love, that comes from Marcion himself. That is not biblical in any way. Now having said that, the, the killing, if you will, in the Old Testament was directed by God because, as he put it, the sins of the Amorites have reached their full. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, they were wiped out. Why weren't other towns wiped out? The Bible tells us. It's because the the cry against them had reached heaven. That tells me that that cry did not come from the throne of God. It came from man. It came from those who were grieved and offended and maybe lives taken from these people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding neighbors. They were so sin-soaked, they were a peril to their culture and the surrounding cities. And God, even though the cry to God in part may have been from followers of Yahweh, Melchizedek. I'm sure there were more followers of Yahweh than Melchizedek and Abraham, okay? But that there were still followers of the one true God. We don't, we, we don't hear about them per se. Job, perhaps another. Uh, he may have lived at this time. But there were other followers of God, but others who weren't. And crying out to God up there somewhere, but the, that cry for justice reached God. And his response was... 
the sin has reached its fill. I must bring justice. Okay? And so God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns. God wiped out the Canaanites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, excuse me. Uh, but he, he, he wiped them out. Why? Because their sins had reached this full. Whatever that is in the mind of God, that is why he did not wipe them out in the time of Abraham, 430 years later, because they hadn't. So God is bringing his justice, but he's bringing it. Sodom and Gomorrah, he brought it directly from himself, maybe through natural causes, earthquakes, fault, some would say, in the, the mantle of the earth. We don't know, but God didn't use the agency of man to do this, but he did when he sent the, the Israelites into Canaan. He didn't do it just because he loves war, just because he's a god of war, just because he's a god of wrath, but because love... I'm going to say this. God did it because of his love. How does that settle with you? God wiped them out because of his love. And he... Imagine... And in, you have this infection in your skin, and it is spread. Let's say staph infection, gangrene. Is it? Would it be right and proper for the surgeon to cut it out? That's going to hurt you, seriously hurt you. But because this surgeon loves you so much, he says you have to have this. If you don't, it will kill you. And because of his love for you, he cuts it out. And you experience pain over the ensuing weeks, but it eventually heals over, but he saved your life. He did that because he loved you. Wow. Now we're starting to see a different picture of God's love. God so loved the world that he destroyed the Canaanites. He even had the children put to death. And, and this gets into another topic I really should not pursue. Um, because it's getting, it's going to get into uh, the stand of children before God, but the children were destined to become just like their parents, and God said no. Can can his yeah. not just use that same argument? Yeah, that's what I was okay. Thinking. So here's the difference. Right. Islam says if you do not agree with me, I must take your life. You don't find that in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, we find the antithesis in people like Rahab, okay, and Tamar, and many of the cultures around them. And now, eventually, Rahab does come to God, but it is not the purpose of God to wipe out the nations around Israel. Now, your example with the Edomites and David. Um, the Edomites were a thorn in the flesh. They constantly opposed and attacked Israel from the time Israel set foot in the Promised Land. Okay, And so, for this reason, God, through David, subdued those countries, nations, around them. Because they were thorns in the flesh. They not only opposed God, but opposed the people of God. And so, to bring peace, he, David used the sword. Um, this is different than Islam because they truly see us as Satan personified and that we need to be put to death. Even though 
we serve the one true God. Many, many people in America. doesn't matter. You're not Muslim. You deserve death. <clears throat> uh, this is not the nature of God. The nature of God, even in the Old Testament, is a redemptive God. And his goal is constantly to redeem and rescue the lost. But that doesn't mean that God will not defend his people. And if a culture comes to that point of utter depravity, he will cut the cancer out. Mm -hmm. And God does bring judgment. Now, there's so much more to this, and and I'm already over time, but excellent, excellent question. I'm only able to answer it in part, because now you can turn to Psalm 2. And this is a messianic psalm, in which I believe says, and opens the door to an understanding of God through the gospel of peace, turning all nations, not just people from all nations, but all nations eventually to Christ. Um, and how does he do that? By, um, by ruling with an iron scepter and dashing the pottery to smithereens. It is through him bringing punishment to the nations that turns the heart of nations then to God and eventually, of course, to Jesus. So God even brings his discipline, which may be at the cost of lives, but he brings his discipline to nations in order to bring them to him. And in the 80s, God did this with Argentina when they lost the war. Um, and immediately following this war with Great Britain, in which they lost the Falcons, um, that there was a revival in Argentina. We see this in uh, Korea, in which after the war, we see this incredible revival. Korea has the largest churches in the world. God used that discipline on a nation to bring about national revival. Okay? Now, that's all that I can say about this. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm skimming the surface, and I realize that, so I apologize for that. But I need to conclude this because I'm already five minutes over. And, and I want to say this, that God is love. God is not love, love, love. But the, and, and, and I'm not going to suppose that I fully understand this. I am taking scriptures and trying to comprehend this. But... There is no other attribute that says God is love. It says he is holy, 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 but it doesn't say he is holiness. But it it doesn't say God is loving, 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 though he is loving. It says God is love, and it uses a noun there, not an adjective. So these attributes are adjectives, and they describe God, and I want to be careful here, but here with love, God is not just loving. God is love. And of all of the attributes then that describe love, Colossians 3 says, excuse me, that describe God, it says love is the cornerstone, the apex, the ultimate of all of these attributes of God. Okay? That, that we can share in. And, and the reason why I can't fully understand this is because this concept of God's love 
is so much more than what I've ever experienced in my life because we serve a God who is infinite and he is infinite in love. And so I'm going to confess to you, I don't understand that God is love. I don't. I am not going to say, I'm not going to deify love, that if you find love over here, well, that's God. No, that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say that love is God. It says God is love. In his essence, he is love. I, I can't speak more than that, because I don't understand that. So there's no forced apostasy in the Old Testament. Yeah, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, forcing people to believe in God or they will die as such. True, right? true. Which and of course that, we that find... That is the difference yes. between a loving God yes. and a, a non-loving God, death God. Right. Yes, though I did know somebody who was in Idi Amin's reign of terror back in the 70s. He came to our college and part of his testimony was he was Idi Amin's bodyguard. And when he got saved, he had to run for his life. But his first conversion in witnessing was a gunpoint. <laughs> it was a forced conversion. Okay, well he matured since then. But that is not the ways of God. <laughs> okay, convert or die. God never says that. Anyways, um, and so this concept of God's, that God is love. Now God is holy, holy, holy. That is an adjective and not a noun. Um, but it is not in any way. Because holiness, I'm going to put, I'm going to see, since love is the apex, holiness is therefore an attribute or an aspect of love. It is in no way contradictory. And if we feel that way, it's because we're not understanding either of them. But holiness, excuse me, yes, holiness is an aspect of true love. Because God is love, and God is holy, holy, holy. Okay? And so, we've then been invited in this adventure, in this relationship and experience with God to plumb the depths of this love that is so broad and vast, it encompasses the holiness of God, so that they are not contradictory. And then the more we understand his love, the more we will understand his holiness. And the more we understand his holiness, we will understand his love. Mm -hmm. what, what an amazing God this is. And as a parent, I, I, I have begun to grasp a larger picture because I truly believe I'm trying to be holy in my bringing of discipline to my children, but I don't do it because I'm this austere, stern father and how dare you cross me because I love my children so, so very deeply. All right. Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for who you are. I think that we have such a perfect picture of you, Father, in your son Jesus. And, and I would ask this, God, on behalf of all of us, help me know your son Jesus. Help me fall in love with him more and more and more. Help me to walk with him and experience him that day by day so that I might know you and your ways and that I might teach my children to know you and your ways. 
and how you have dealt with me, that they too would be able to experience this awesomely holy God of love. And I ask you, Lord God, even this week, reveal to us, both through your word and our experiences with you, more and more of yourself. Please, God, that we would know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.